Well, friends, let me invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, If you're here with us for the first time today, maybe exploring Christianity for the first time, there are three things I want to say to you right here at the top. The first is, one of the most important things you need to know about us at Edgefield and Christians in general is that we, we believe that the God who made the whole world and made every one of us is a God who has chosen to speak. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. He wanted to make himself known in words that we could understand and track with. And where he's spoken to us most clearly is in his word. That's the Bible. So every week when we gather, we spend a big chunk of our time walking through verse by verse parts of this, of this word because we think that's where we can hear from God and where we can know who he is and what he's done and what it looks like for us to, to, to live as his people. So that's what we're going to do now. The second thing that you'll uh, want to know is that that copy of the Bible in arm's reach of you, that's for you. If you don't own one, uh, we put it there not just for you to track with us for the rest of the time here this morning, but for you to take it with you uh, because there's nothing more important that you could give your time to today than knowing what that book has to say about God. We'd love for you to take it as our gift to you. And you'll find what we're going to look at this morning on page 900 of the little uh, hardback Bible that should be in arm's reach for you. And the third thing I'll say uh, that you'll need to know is that the Bible is really one big story. There are a lot of different sections in it. Uh, it covers a lot of ground over a lot of years, but, but weaving all the way through it is a single thread. A, a one big storyline that tells the story of the whole world and where it comes from and where it's going and what that means for you. And like all good stories, the Bible story has villains. Actually, has quite a few villains. And you know, every good story turns on the villains, where they come from, what they're up to. Luke needs his Darth Vader, doesn't he, to make that interesting? Harry needs his Voldemort. Sherlock needs his Moriarty. The Bible has a lot of villains too. I mean, there, 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 are, villains, there are villains that are enemies of God's people. You've got the Egyptians early on and Pharaoh who led them. You've got Goliath and the Philistines. You've got Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. You've got the chief priests and the, the Romans who backed what they wanted to see done, trying to root out the earliest Christians. You've got a lot of, in other words, historical enemies of God's people, villains that, that pepper through the story that the Bible tells. On the other hand, you've also got spiritual villains that come up sometimes in the Bible story. The Bible teaches that there is a, a spiritual force of evil out there with a name, a real ruler of the, the powers of darkness, the Bible says, that, that has demons who do his will. But those those villains actually barely ever show up in the storyline. You know, one of the most interesting things to me about the Bible storyline is that in terms of airtime, the villains that get the most exposure, that do the most damage, that come up the most often as the, the most real threats to God's people are actually villains that don't even really exist. Idols are the, the most popular, most common, most frequently cited villains in the story the Bible tells. Idols that time and again, generation after generation, draw God's people away from him and from his promises. The Bible is really clear about idols. They don't represent anything real. Idols themselves are nothing They're made by human hands and then invested by humans with whatever powers they have. Idols themselves are nothing. 
But idolatry, idolatry is all too real. Idolatry is at its most dangerous when we ignore its power. That's the warning that Paul writes to us of in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a section of this letter that he wrote to an early group of Christians that he'd helped to get organized and and founded as as a church. He's writing to them, responding to a letter they wrote to him. They'd asked him, is it okay for us to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols in a temple of the pagans here in Corinth? I mean, we know that those idols aren't real. So those idols don't have any power to contaminate this meat. So why not have a steak every now and then? I mean, it's good, right? That's what they wrote to him asking about. And and, and from chapter 8 all the way through the chapter we're looking at today, he's answering that question in layer by layer, walking them down further into the reality of what's going on in these pagan temples. I mean, he starts with acknowledging they're right. It's kind of a yes, but argument. Yeah, these idols are nothing. There's no reality to them. They're empty. You shouldn't be afraid of them. But have you thought about what might happen if you eat meat and a and a a brother or a sister thinks that means you can worship idols, that it's okay to be with Jesus and and do that, if that's how they think about it, that'll hurt them. So why would you want to eat meat? And and then in chapter 10, where we come to today, a new layer of the argument. I mean, yeah, sure, the idols are nothing. But idolatry, the longing that lies behind worship of those idols, The quest for control of your life on your terms, getting what you want, when you want it, all of that is all too real and you'd be a fool to sleep on it. That's Paul's point in this text today. Chapter 10 warns us of the allure of idolatry and tells us how to avoid it. I want to begin by reading to you what we're going to consider this morning. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 10 and read to verse 22. And I want to ask you, if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful 
And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is God's word. You may be seated. Two points this morning, friends. The allure of idolatry and how to avoid it. I want us to consider first the allure of idolatry and then how we can avoid it. Paul is a wonderful teacher. He knows that if you want your point to get home, you often need an example. You need an illustration. You need something clear that people can relate to that will drive that point all the way home. And that's why at the beginning of this chapter, all about idolatry, he takes them to one of the most familiar examples of all in the history of God's people. He takes them back to the story of Israel. He takes them back to the roots of of Israel's life as a nation in the wilderness wanderings after God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and was taking them to the promised land. It's through this story, Israel's experience in the wilderness, that Paul pulls back the curtains and shows us what idolatry looks like on the inside and why it's so tempting to fall into it. The story begins with God's faithfulness to Israel. He, uh, Paul begins in his first few verses with a list of things that, that Israel was given by the grace of God back when they were trapped in slavery in Egypt. Did you notice? Walk with, these, walk with me through these verses. Verse 1, our fathers all were under the cloud, Paul says. And he's referring to this pillar of cloud that, 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 that guided them through the wilderness. They didn't know where to go. And so God was with them in a visible, tangible way that they could easily connect with and trust. His cloud protected them and guided them as they wandered. Verse 2, our fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's taken them there to the the fact that when their backs were up against the sea and Pharaoh was bearing down on them, ready ready to wipe them off the face of the earth, God parted the seas and he took them through the waters into new life under the leadership of Moses. It was like a baptism, a boundary between when they belonged to Pharaoh and now when they belonged to God. And then verses three and four, Paul reminds them they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. When you hear spiritual, think supernatural. God fed them with bread from the sky every morning so they'd have something to eat. When they were really thirsty and there was no water source, God provides a rock. It's struck and water springs out to give them all the drink that they need. Spiritual food, spiritual drink that God fed them with in the wilderness. These are the stories of the Exodus. These are the stories that found God's people. 
told them who they were. And they are full to the brim of God's faithfulness. Day by day. In these obvious and undeniable ways. Now, Paul's building to a point here. And I'm going to make this point in just a second. But before we get to the point he's actually building to, I think it's important to do a, a really quick sidebar and make sure that you appreciate what Paul's doing so far. Hey, Paul, what he's doing in these first few verses, did you see this, guys? He is teaching you how to read your Bible. He's showing you what you're supposed to see when you open the Old Testament. He wants you to know that the whole thing is about Jesus. And he's at the center of all of it. First of all, Israel's story is your story. Did you notice that Paul says that in verse 1 of chapter 10? He's writing to, think about this. He's writing to a collection of Gentiles, mostly. These are converts out of paganism into, into Christianity. They're now followers of Jesus. And when he looks back at Israel's history, he talks about our fathers. Israel's story is your story if you're a Christian. It's all part of the same story you've been caught up into. How God relates to his people to make a name for himself through how he loves them. Notice also, Paul is saying this whole story was built by God to foreshadow what was going to happen through Jesus and and in his people that will be drawn from all nations. The Red Sea, you know what that was? That was a little teaser for baptism. You know what the manna from the sky and the water from the rock, you know what those were? Little teasers, little trailers for communion, for Christ's body broken and his blood shed for his people. The whole thing, all those little details of Israel's stories are just laying the groundwork for what would be fulfilled in Jesus. Paul is sending you on a treasure hunt when you go back into the Old Testament to find him there wherever you look. And notice that Christ is right at the center of all of it. In verse four, Paul describes that rock that gave Israel water when they had nowhere else to get it, was Christ. It doesn't mean literally the rock was was a, a body that belonged to Jesus. He means Christ was there giving his people what they need. Christ was the one supplying them with the water they couldn't find elsewhere. Christ was with them already. So when Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament, it's not because he's a brand new character. He's just entering the scene in a new way that's more visible and powerful than ever before. But he was there for all of it. The rock was Christ, Paul says. So if you're interested in growing as a Christian, one of the most important things you can do is practice reading your whole Bible like this right here. Paul is giving you a new set of glasses to put on before you open it up. And there is a world of good waiting to be discovered there when you learn how to look for it. We would love to help you grow in that. If that's something that sounds new to you, if you've never approached the Old Testament like this before and you don't know where to begin and you're worried that you might actually end up reading into it and seeing things that aren't there, first of all, that's a good concern to have. You don't wanna do that. And there's a lot of good help out there that we would love to introduce you to. So please do come up to me after the service if you're interested in learning more about how to approach the Bible like this and I'd be glad to point you in the right direction. Now though, back to Paul's point because he's actually laying out all of these good blessings that Israel enjoyed all to make a really sobering point. He's not actually trying to encourage the Corinthians here but to warn them. Look where he goes in verse five. They they lived under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They ate the spiritual food. They drank the spiritual drink and nevertheless... Despite all those advantages, with most of them, 
God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul is saying, their story is your story. Their blessings are like your blessings. They saw in their way what you've now seen in Jesus. And look what happened to them. God was not pleased with them in the end. Then Paul launches into a series of examples to warn us against falling like they did. Verses 6 to 11 are just chock full of one example after another. And there was a lot longer list he could have drawn from to make this point. But he gives us four examples of places where Israel in the wilderness, right after receiving all these blessings, forgets who they have in God and begin to turn to other gods for what they need instead. Verse 7, he says, don't be idolaters like they were. And the quote that he gives us there comes straight out of Exodus 32. This is when Israel was waiting at the bottom of the mountain of Sinai where Moses had gone up to get the law from God and he takes longer than they wanted him to take and they start getting antsy and nervous. They get impatient, the text says. They don't want to wait anymore. And so what do they do? They collect all the gold in the people, all the earrings and bracelets and anything they can find that's gold. They melt it all down and they make a calf that they then worship. And say, here's the God who brought us out of Egypt. Now give us what we want for today. Paul's saying, look how quickly they forgot. Look how quickly they tried to claim God's power on their terms. Rather than trusting him to be God. And resting as his people. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Here he has in mind, same general period, the wilderness, but Numbers 25 tells this story. Israel, still tempted by the gods of the nations around them, they give in to the ways those nations were appealing to their gods. Sexual immorality here, kind of like temple prostitution in Corinth, we considered in chapter 6, was a way of trying to get those gods on your side. It was all caught up with fertility with the desire to have children and to have crops that come in year after year. So Israel sees what's going on in their fertility rituals. and They want in on that. And the men pursue the women of Midian. And God judges them for what they've done. And then verses 9 and 10. I mean, these aren't even that clear. It's not even crystal clear which time he has in mind because this happened so many times. But he notes how, how Israel fell to grumbling. They started to get tired of waiting on on the promises God had made to them. And they start looking back over their shoulder at what they had in Egypt. Man, in Egypt, we weren't eating bread from the sky every day. We had meat pots to eat. Wouldn't you lead us out here to die for, Moses? We could have died back in Egypt and not had to walk all the way out here to begin with. They start to grumble against God. And God punishes them for their grumbling. Can you see what Paul's doing here? Paul's trying to show us what idolatry looks like to warn us against falling into it like they did. Verse 6 and verse 11, they say the same thing. These things happen to Israel as examples to us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11, these things happen to them as an example written down for our instruction. What's the lesson? What are we supposed to learn about the allure of idolatry? 
from seeing what happened to Israel in the wilderness? I think there's three things, three quick things. I think we're meant to learn from this example. The first thing I think Paul wants us to learn is that the allure of idolatry is strongest in the space between what God has given already and what God has promised for our future. In the space between what he's given, past blessings, all that, that list in verses one to four and what he's promised but hasn't given us yet. All through the Exodus, what God says is that he is gonna show Israel and the world who he is. He's gonna show that he's the one who rules over Pharaoh. He's gonna show that he's the one who hears when the oppressed cry out. He's gonna show that he is a God who always keeps his promises. He never forgets. And then chapter by chapter through the story of the Exodus, that's exactly what he's showing. He comes in and he smacks Pharaoh down. He has no move to respond to what God does to him there. God hears the cries of Israel and he acts to save them. But all of that happened in the past. Now they're in the wilderness and they're looking ahead to a, a land that God has promised them. A land where God said they would live free as his people. That they would have, enjoy a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, a land of peace and safety and plenty and joy. We just don't have to worry about anything. A land where you get to, to the fullest experience what it is to have God for your God. To have him nearby and providing for everything that you need. That's what's their future is going to include. He's told them that. That's where they're headed. But in, in example after example that Paul has cited here, in the original stories that he's telling, the key was always impatience, the inability to wait, being in between what God had done and what God had promised. Israel claimed something for themselves now. Their craving and their desire for control took them over. That's the second thing that you need to know about the allure of idolatry. First is that it plays out in this space between what has been given and what has been promised. The second thing to know is that idolatry boils down to what you want most and how you hope to get it. If you wanna know what idolatry is about, it always boils down to what do you want most and how do you think you get it? I think it's so important to know when Paul is framing all of this in verse six, he's telling us that what brought them down was their desire for evil, their hearts and what their hearts wanted, their craving, that's what did them in. That phrase is all through the Bible's accounts of the, of the wilderness years. Craving controlled them. Idolatry is always about trying to claim a life for ourselves right here, right now, on our terms. It stems from, from, from a longing for something you don't have yet that hasn't been given to you or promised to you and an attempt to grab it on your terms. In, in Colossians 3, Paul says that coveting is idolatry. Coveting, this, this craving after something you can see, maybe that, that you've hoped for or that you see somebody else has. When that coveting grabs hold of your heart and takes over, you'll do whatever you have to do to get it. That's idolatry. Nobody in, in these ancient times when idols would be given these forms, these statues, these temples, nobody was ever worshiping the idol for the joy of knowing them. It wasn't just because they loved the look of that set of horns on that calf. You know, you, you worship the fertility God because you wanted good crops or healthy kids. 
You worship the God of war because you wanted to win in battle. You worship the God of the sea because you had a, a trip to take and you didn't want to sink. You worship the God of rain because you needed crops to get water if you're going to eat that fall. You worship gods for what they gave you. They're a means to an end. Your cravings on your terms. That's what idolatry boils down to. And the final thing to notice, the third thing you need to know from this example about the allure of idolatry is that it is deadly. Paul could not be more clear on this. Verse 8. 23,000 fell by plague when Israel joined the Midianites in their fertility rituals. Verse 9, many who, who tested the Lord fell to fiery serpents in the wilderness. Verse 10, many others were destroyed by the destroyer when they grumbled against Moses and against God. The reality is, friends, that God takes sin seriously. It registers with him. When we look to the things that he's made rather than to him. Every time we give in to idolatry, we're also making a statement about him. What we're saying is these things are more rewarding than, than his friendship. That these goods matter more than, than God. That these things are more trustworthy, more crucial for a meaningful life than his word backed by his power about the future that he will give to those who trust in him. The Bible says God will not share his glory with another. His judgment is always meant to set the record straight. That's what it was doing in the wilderness. It was exposing the lies that Israel was telling about this God. And that's what it will do in the end. Idolatry is not just empty. It's not just foolish. It's not just primitive behavior. It is dangerous. It is, it is deadly for those who give in to it. So point two today, how can we avoid it? Point one is the allure of idolatry. Point two is how to avoid it. And that's what Paul's really trying to do here in this chapter. This little flyover of Israel's history is not for their entertainment value. It's all about leverage. It's all building what he says next. He wants to see his friends see that though these idols are nothing in these pagan temples in Corinth, idolatry is all too real and they ought to be worried about it. They ought to be really, really worried about it. And he wants them to run the other way. So verse 12, guys, look down here with me. In verse 12, we get, we get a set of three conclusions beginning there and carrying through to the end of the passage. Three conclusions that Paul draws from Israel's example of idolatry. I think of these as a three-part strategy for us to avoid the downfall of Israel. How can we avoid what they went through? First, verse 12, be suspicious of yourself. Be suspicious of yourself. That's the first step to resisting the allure of idolatry. You got to know you're not above it. Verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So right here, Paul, is, he, he's writing to a church that was overconfident. That's come up several times already in this letter. They were really, really full of themselves. They saw even their gatherings at church as a chance to try to rise above the crowd and make a name for themselves. And he's writing to people who think of themselves as strong. He's especially focused on them here. 
That was a group that, that, like most of us in this room, we know better than to think there's anything real in an idol statue or a temple made by human hands. And we know better than to think that's real and can do anything to help us. They knew better, and, and, and so they were puffed up. They were getting cocky and confident. Paul's trying to knock them down a rung or two. He's telling them the worst thing you could do would be to look down on Israel as some sort of sad and primitive and easily duped mob. Some group that was just foolish enough to think a statue they made could possibly give them what they wanted. Guys, it, we are in the, exactly the same position now that Israel was in then, in a way. Israel had been redeemed by God in Egypt, and they were on the way to the promised land that he had said he would give to their fathers. That's where they met their temptation to idolatry. If you're a Christian this morning, you are in between what God has already done to deliver you from sin and death through Jesus who came, lived, died, and rose for you. And the eternal home that God has promised you that he hasn't actually given to you yet. A world that will be free of sin and sorrow and death. A world where you don't have to worry what's waiting around the corner. A world where you know where you stand because you stand with God and his presence is your light. That's the future. And Jesus is our past. And for now we live in a wilderness just like Israel did. And just like Israel, we'll be tempted to forget what God's already shown us when he sent his son to live, die, and rise. And we will be tempted to lose sight of what God has promised us when we compare it to the wonderful things we think we could get out of this life. We are in Israel's position. And there is a reason that Paul describes the Christian life as a life of struggle, as a battle, as warfare, spiritually. It is. It is an everyday battle to remember what God has done and to look forward to what God has promised so that those two poles are more clear than anything else in our lives. It's a battle because our hearts still have so much in them that long for what this world can offer us. And it's not a good sign, friend, if the Christian life seems easy to you. That's probably a reason to be very concerned. Paul himself lived with the urgency of knowing that he might be disqualified. The last verse of chapter 9 that sets up this whole section, Paul says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. I fight against sin and the empty promises of this world, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He doesn't want that. Are you concerned about that? Paul is telling you that you should be. Now, I want to be clear. If you're hearing this and you're worried that maybe your faith isn't real, that maybe your faith won't last, if this is making you, if this is sort of pulling a scab off of an ongoing struggle you live with and wondering whether or not you're really truly with Jesus, let me tell you that that's not the, the situation Paul has in mind. He's actually not thinking about you here. There are other texts where Paul makes it really clear that if you're trusting in Christ, Christ will carry you all the way to the end. Romans 8 is a great place to go if you're feeling nervous based on what you're hearing. Romans 8 promises that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. What Paul is writing against here 
What he's speaking into is not concerns about assurance of salvation, whether or not your faith is genuine. He's writing about carelessness, about people who assume their salvation as if there's no way they could possibly fall guilty of what Israel fell into. He's given us a warning that is part of what God uses to keep his children faithful all the way to the end. Back over spring break, my family was doing some hiking in the mountains. We went to this uh, waterfall in North Carolina called Dry Falls. And, you know, it was spring. It was cold. I didn't want to go swimming anyway. And I'm not the kind of person who would typically climb to the top of a waterfall and jump off of it even in the middle of summer. But, but there were signs all around saying, don't climb up to the top of this waterfall and jump off. Fatalities. There's citing the fact that people had died doing just that. That over and over people are climbing up there, jumping off and getting hurt, if not killed. Now, whether or not I was likely to do that in the middle of March is beside the point. That sign warned me and kept me from doing that. It was part of what was used to preserve me in my faith that it would be a ridiculous thing to jump off of the top of that waterfall in March. And God uses texts like the one we're doing, looking at right now to assure us and keep us from losing our faith. This is part of his gift to hold us all the way to the end. Texts like this one, in other words, are part of how nothing can separate us from his love. It's seeing this warning and responding to it that protects us all the way to the end. First thing you need to know to avoid the downfall of Israel is to be suspicious of yourself and know you're not above it. The second thing to know is that you can depend on God for help. That's verse 13. Verse 13 balances out that warning in verse 12. It's like, yeah, yeah, by all means, take heed. But remember, God is faithful, okay? You're not on your own. You will be tempted, but no more than anybody else has been. And God will provide the way of escape so you can endure it. That's verse 13. Look to him for help. He'll help you. Can you see, Paul's trying to motivate us here, not to scare us. He doesn't actually want to scare these people. He wants to motivate them to find shelter where it is available to them in God and his promises and his ever-present help. He wants to drive them back to him. And that way of escape that he's talking about, it's not like some secret. It's not like God has, has provided it if, you, if you've got the eyes to see it or if you just look and find it in just the right voice or in the moment of temptation, you're paying attention to just the right angle. No, no, his ways of escape are all around us and obvious. You know, you're taking the way of escape right now. When you showed up for another Lord's Day, when you gathered with your church to hear it all over again, you were taking the way of escape. Remember what we're escaping from? Bad memories. We're escaping from perspectives that are locked in on this world and what it offers instead of what God has promised to us in heaven for all of eternity. How do we fight that temptation? by gathering Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to hear it all over again. You are taking the way of escape right now. And that was a good thing to do. It's good you did. You know what other ways of escape he's given us? Your friends, they're a way of escape. Talk to them about your life. Let them pay attention to you. Let them notice temptations you might not notice about yourself. Invite them to apply the Bible to your life. That's the way of escape that God has given or what about just reading the Bible for your own? An open Bible is a powerful escape hatch from the temptations you're gonna face day in and day out. Every time we celebrate communion, we take the way of escape that God has given us. Here, remember, this is my body, this is my blood. I did it all for you. You can trust me with your future. That's us claiming the way of escape God has given us time and time again. These are the ways that God protects us. Use them. 
depend on him in the places he said he would show up for you. And then finally, and close with this, flee from idolatry to Jesus. Flee. Flee. Let verse 14 land on you. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In these last verses, Paul is bringing home what he's been building up all along. It really sums up a lot of what we've already been saying and puts a needle fine point on it. Really, in these verses, he's given us a tale of two suppers. He takes communion and what that represents for Christians. The body and the blood that that Jesus gave up for us, we share in those when we celebrate communion. And, And what happens when pagans eat at their temples? Paul's trying to show us that that the same kind of thing is happening in both settings. The key word he uses here over and over is participation. Did you see that? Basically it means fellowship. It means joining in on what this food represents. Because the type of food is beside the point. But who you eat it with and why you eat it, what that meal means, that's huge. And the two are just like one another. When you join together to participate in the body and the blood... He's saying, we are made one through what we do. We are joined to one another. Think of the the body and the blood of Jesus as kind of like the warmth of a fire pit on a cold spring night. And you got people who are hanging out around a fire pit. They get closer and closer and closer to it as the night gets colder and colder and colder. That warmth brings them together and they're made one by experiencing exactly the same warmth. That's what happens in communion. Because what's offered to us there is a promise that God showed up when we needed him. That he came for us through Jesus who gave it all so that we could be set free from sin and from death. And we together come to those same promises, are drawn into that same body and that same blood so that we participate in those promises. So that we share in them. Now what happened, if that's what's happening in communion, and he's thinking, yeah, they'll get that. They know that. He's just setting them up. What do you think is happening in the temples? with these idols that don't exist when the people who think they do come together to eat and drink in their honor what do you think is happening there what are you participating in there well for those people in that setting that meal has a meaning this meal is how they get what they want on their terms This meal is how they claim their designed future for themselves, for themselves right now. These meals are about leverage. These meals celebrate a way of life, a good life on their terms. When you go and eat with them, you're just celebrating the same things that they are. You see what he's doing? Meals are not just meals. The food is not the point. The fellowship is the point. Who are you with, really? Whose future do you really want? The one that 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 idolatry pictures for you or the one that Jesus has promised to you through his body and his blood that he gave? Yeah, verse 19 says, these idols aren't anything. They're empty, handmade statues and they're powerless. But the idolatry behind it, all too real. Demons stand behind what those idols stand for. It's easy sometimes, friends, when we hear references like this to demons, 
like Paul mentions in verse 20 and 21, to think about movies like The Exorcist, you know, to think about the big eye-catching special effects driven exorcist style demonic activity. Well, you know, when demons and spiritual powers of evil, Satan, when he actually shows up in the story, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, you do you. He's saying, wouldn't it be better for your future if you didn't trust God and claimed your life on your terms right here, right now? In Genesis chapter 3, that's what the serpent tells to Eve. God said, yeah, okay. He just doesn't want what's best for you. You could be at his level if you do your thing on your terms. In the book of Job, Job has all this wonderful stuff. And Satan comes to, to God and says, you know, the only reason he cares about you is that you gave him everything he could have ever wanted anyway. Take it away. Take away this world and see if he still has anything for you. This world is what matters most. Or Jesus, when he's in the wilderness facing the evil one, he comes to him, takes him up to a high mountain. He looks out and says, here, the kingdoms of the world, they and all their glory are yours. Your best life now. That's what the demons are all about. And that's what that idol meat was there to represent. And Paul has put this warning here so that we will get real picky about noticing on the inside what it is we're running for. Do we really want what everyone else wants? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What stresses you out at the thought of not having it? What crushes you when it's taken away? What do you want and how do you expect to get it? Paul's confronting us with that question. But he's ultimately pushing us to flee from idolatry because he wants us to run to Jesus. His goal is not just to pull back the curtain on how empty all of this is, but to remind us what's represented when we celebrate communion. The reason he goes straight from flee from idolatry into when you participate in the body and the blood of Jesus, don't you see what you're doing? The reason he makes that move is he wants us running towards Christ. We run so much faster when we know where we're going. What matters for getting there is not what's in your rearview mirror so much as what you're seeing out your windshield. Who is out there for you? What is it that you want? You know, when Jesus used body and blood image, imagery in John chapter 6, it was to promise that he could satisfy us at a level that nothing else could. He said to his followers, that manna that your, that your fathers ate in the wilderness, they ate it, they all still died. It didn't actually satisfy anything. What they drank out there, they drank it. It didn't satisfy them. They went on and died. What I'm going to give you, my body, my blood, you eat this, you drink this, you'll live forever. You will not die. And of course, Jesus goes on from there to actually give up his body and actually give up his blood in the clearest possible sign of who his people are to him. What Jesus offers us isn't going to sound very good if what we want from our lives is something other than him. But if you know you've betrayed him and want to be forgiven, if you know you're dying and you want to live, if you feel your aloneness in the universe 
and you want a friend. If you want friendship with the God who made you, then what Jesus offers you is eternal life, the only life that'll work. Is that what you want? To think of Jesus saying, my body and my blood, I gave them up for you. Is this what you want? Well, here's how you get it. I give it to you. Take, eat. There's no special incantation. There's no gyration that you need to do. There's really nothing for you except to take and eat. If this is what you want, here's how you can get it. And with him, a shepherd who will carry you all the way home. The best way to run from idolatry, friends, is to run to Jesus. Well, let's do that together right now. Father, we see too much of ourselves in what we see in Israel. And we know that we won't be any more faithful than they were in the wilderness unless you, by your power, protect us. So we ask you to. We ask you to hold us. And to hold us not just by the fear of the idols that are empty and always leave us wanting, but to hold us by the love that you shed in our hearts for the son whom you did not spare. Help us to see Christ and to cling to him all the way home. In Jesus' name, amen.